This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. Today, I'm ready to receive the incorruptible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. I'll never be the same again. Come on. Never, never, never. In Jesus' name, amen. Best shout ever. If you're new to Believer's Church and haven't plugged in with us in a while, March the 3rd, we came home to our brand new church here, and we began teaching from the book of Acts. On the screen, the uh, series of what we're looking at is called History Come Home. God really dropped the book of Acts into my heart, and I just began myself personally to ask some hard questions to me personally. Were we doing what Jesus really wanted us to do as Christians? I knew we were coming back home in a new facility. I'd been in ministry for 20 plus years, 23 years pastoring. And so I just began to become desperate and say, God, would you speak to me? History comes home was what God put in my heart. I began to study the book of Acts and read through it. And I just became really challenged myself, my personal life. And I just kind of came to the guys and girls on staff and said, I really feel like we just need to devour the book of Acts. So History Comes Home is a 2,000-year-old book called The Bible coming alive in our heart. And here's what we found out so far. We found out that the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we would call the Gospels, paint a picture of a historical Jesus, a Jesus that really did walk the earth, a Jesus that really did his miracles, a Jesus that uh, told parables. But from the historical Jesus, we've asked this question that that wasn't the end. The end is not just to say, oh, I know what this story's about. I know Jesus said this. It's not about a historical Jesus. It's about a resurrected Jesus. It's about the Jesus of 2,000 years ago that died, is still alive today. He wants to be alive in our hearts, and he wants our lives to display his power to the planet. So the historical Jesus, that's the religious Jesus, we all can say his name, take our hat off, say our prayers, say in Jesus' name, and be religious people is not the Jesus I'm talking about. The Jesus I want to introduce through Scripture is the one that makes his home in your heart. He changes your life. You become born again. You're an entirely different creature, and your life begins to become on display for the world to see. We're about to break open the Bible and study it, but a lot of people don't even have a Bible. They may never pick it up. They may not believe in it. They may think it's just a stupid, archaic book that doesn't even make sense. And then that's where your life comes in because you become the very words of God that people will read. Your life becomes the display of Jesus' reality. So we've been looking at that since March, trying to pull it out. And man, some weeks have really stung because it makes us ask the hard question, are we really doing what Jesus wants us to do? So open up to Acts chapter 1, if you will. I want you to look at the TV because I want to put a, a graphic on the TV to just show you what the book of Acts is about, in my opinion. This is just an opinion of mine, but from what I've read, three things are pretty critical in the book of Acts. First, witness. It doesn't just mean standing on a street corner screaming at people that they're going to hell. But when I say witness, I mean that your life displays Jesus. And we've been talking about that the last probably seven weeks. 
looking at the real personal testimony that each of us have individually as a witness. God does care how you live. You display and represent Him. And then around the wheel is the word community. This is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the, the Greek word is the word ekklesia. It means church, which the American term we've categorized as the church. It's what's become known today as the church. The First Methodist, First Baptist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Independent, Church of God, Assembly of God, Church of God in Christ. All of the titles and symbols we give it. But the Bible lends itself to being the word I put up there, uh, the word community. It means a group of people that come together under a common cause and a common banner to represent an agenda as a group to push a mission forward. Uh, so community, I, the best way I could define it today, uh, you know, that we could see it happening is in the LGBT community. And they'll even have like LGBT community, meaning they come together under a common mission, under a common banner to push a common mission together and have an agenda to get a cause out there for people to know. Well, the word community, that was not thought up by us. That was thought up by God. God was the one that intended a group of people would come together. And in that group of people coming together, they would display the very power, love, and forgiveness of God to the world and the community today we call church. My opinion, it's just an opinion. My opinion is we've blown it pretty well. Because we've turned this power of community into just religious services, programs, perfected programs to try to impress people and get more butts in the seat, pack it out as much as we can. And I don't really think that's what God intended community to be. And that's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean to really be this thing called community? Acts chapter 1, if you will, that's where I want to start reading. Verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to an upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who, who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. I want you to just look at the screen for a minute. Let's just all read it together. All right, not to be spooky, but just put your eyeballs on it. Let's read it. Here we go. During this time... When about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Look at the middle line. The very fact that believers being together in one place is God's idea. God started this idea out that believers would come together in one place so that he could accomplish a mission. I think the moment that that began to happen and these 120 believers are in a place... I think the devil suddenly begins to realize the power we can have when we really come together in unity. And man, 2,000 years later, we've really blown this thing because often on Sunday morning is a very segregated hour. I think we've proven we can hardly agree on anything. What kind of Bible to use, what kind of music to play, whether I can have long hair, short hair, makeup, short pants, no short pants. Can women talk? Can they not talk? Is tongues real? Is tongues not real? 
spending five hours talking about money, you know, tithe, offering. You better get in a group. You better get on a team. You better, you better. Running people in, giving you a cookie, putting a T-shirt on you, giving you a pen, giving you a coffee mug, shooting you out the door. Repeat the process. And I just don't think when I read that that was God's intention. I don't think God is looking 2,000 years later saying, now this is going to be such a tragedy. We're going to have to figure out how to get people to come in the door. we got to give them cookies and coffee mugs and pens and T-shirts and bumper stickers. And we've got to entertain them because if we don't entertain them, I just don't think that was God's intention in the beginning. I think he looks down at these 120 people and he says, I have an idea and it's going to blow the world away. It's going to be so incredible that 2,000 years later, what I'm about to do with this 120 people, you'll still be talking about it. That's how incredible his idea was. So I want you to get a picture. There's probably 180, 200 plus people here today. So a little less than this started the entire thing out we call church. And it really wasn't a good group of people. It's messed up people at best. We have Mary, Jesus' mom. So in the room, we've got a mother whose kid has been killed hanging out with 11 guys who were turncoats because they left her boy to be beat up when he probably needed them the most. Come on, moms in the room. Any mama bears? And yet somehow Mary sucked it up and was willing to get in a room with 11 men who tucked tail and ran on her kid. And they could have all copped an attitude and said, well, I don't know if I want to be in the room because uh, one of them just committed suicide. They could have all gotten bitter and said, well, I'm not going. Man, Judas committed suicide. The brothers of Jesus were there and the brothers of Jesus literally thought he was a lunatic. So I've got a disappointed mom that could be ticked off at 11 guys for doing her son wrong. I've got two brothers in the room that literally thought Jesus was a lunatic along with 11 other men who followed him for three years even though they did blow it at the end. They could have been mad at the brothers and said, well, why didn't you give us the time of day? Why did you only act like your brother was a lunatic? But now you want to come into the upper room? Now you want to be here with us? And then it says there were some other women there. The Bible doesn't tell us who the 120 are. Speculation, I guess we could do. But if you really study it out, speculation is blind Bartimaeus was up there, Zacchaeus was up there, Mary Magdalene was up there, Nicodemus was up there. All the people that Jesus had bumped into and really radically changed their life had somehow, you know, I mean, theoretically found themselves there. So I've got a disappointed woman, 11 mad guys, two guys that thought the guys were mad, upset, calling Jesus a devil. I got a guy that committed suicide. I got a hooker in the room. I got all kind of people. And God looks down and said, this is a perfect group. This is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a mad mama, 11 turncoats, two kids that don't even know anything. I want a hooker in the room. I want all kind of stuff. I want to lump them up in a room because that's who I want to start with. That's just ludicrous. You should have at least started with religious people. They all, watch this. They all have only been godly for about five days. Less than 40 days ago, every one of them tucked tail and ran. And God says, I want to start with them. I want to start with all the messed up people. 
I want you to understand something about the first group of people that ever met as a church. They were some messed up brothers and sisters. And God said, that's what I want to use. Because messed up people understand they need the power and the life of God. And so what we get today, since Satan realized what happens when messed up people bump into the power of God, he now has turned us into messed up people who fake it. Messed up people who act like we're not messed up. Messed up people who try to be really self-righteously better than all the other messed up people. And everybody in the room, you don't even have to be a tarot card reader or a fortune teller to know that everybody in the room today is messed up. Unless you're about over 75. And then you've messed up so much you already know you don't need to mess up anymore. (laughs) But the rest of us are figuring out as we go. And so God just says, okay, good, that's the group I'm going to start with. 120 messed up people. And the power of God comes, 3,000, 5,000. So powerful was that moment. You're still here today talking about it. What can God do with a group of messed up people called community? Well, yes, he could change the world. And yet we've just turned into the wrong thing. I'm not picking on people. Like I'm not even acting like I got my act together. But I just feel like we've turned into the wrong thing. It's just turned into programs. It's just turned into entertaining you, emotionally satisfying you. I'm going to help you out. It is impossible to make everybody in the room emotionally happy. It's not even why we exist. We don't exist to make each other emotionally happy. We exist to move the mission of Jesus Christ forward. And sometimes you might have to do that with tears in your eyes, but you just do it anyway. Because we're not here for us, we're here for him. But once the devil knows that, he takes messed up people and suddenly we exist for you. I've been a, I've been a part of a church team where if what Michael did today for you, because he, he really nailed it first service. But he came over a minute ago, he said, man, I really messed that song up three times in a row. And we just both laughed and said, yeah, but that's okay. Because we're not here to put on a perfected performance. If you're coming for perfection, you should have bought a ticket. It was free when you came in the door. The very fact that it's free means we'll probably mess up a little bit. But I was was part of a team. When we messed up, we royally got our hind ends chewed off the next day at staff. The TVs were wrong. They didn't fire at the right time. The lights were wrong. The smoke was wrong. You missed that. How did you miss that? And we all just sat there like, oh God, we're all in trouble. Oh my God, we're all in trouble. Because we didn't perform up to the level of performance on a Sunday. And man, I just couldn't live it. I'm like, I just, it's sad when you leave church and want to smoke weed. It's just like, my God, it's so tense. It's like, I just love Jesus, but that was so tense. I just need some weed. Right? I mean, it's just like, who wants to live? I thought we were free, and if we're free... And I'm not talking about we come in unplanned. I'm not talking about we just mess everything up. I'm just talking about when it does mess up, my God, that's not why we're here. That's kind of what I meant. And so when me and Robin moved here and started Believers, you know, kind of taking it from the mom and dad's helm, I was like, I just don't want to do it stressed out anymore. I don't want to do it where we're putting on a performance, 
where the band has to perform to please people, where all the TVs have to be perfect, where my sermon has to impress you so much you come back next week because I hate that pressure. It's impossible. It is impossible for a man or a woman to preach every week and impress you so much you keep wanting to come back. It's impossible for Michael and the team to perfectedly play every song every single time. I expect them to blow it some. It makes me feel better. When they blow it, I'm like, good, they blew it. Now we know it's not about them. It's not about, he doesn't even have to apologize to me. It's just about, I I want Jesus to come out to people. And when he says to me, hey, we're going to be singing a song that's on my heart. I mean, I've been in parts where if the words didn't come up on the TV, somebody's in trouble. I need to see some words. All I see is a blank TV, and that blank TV reminds me somebody is going to go to hell. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody is in trouble. He's got the wrong lines. This guy's singing this. The TVs are that. Somebody's in trouble. I just don't want to live that way anymore. That's like being married and your wife's saying, pick your underwear up. I don't want to pick my underwear up. If I wanted to pick my underwear up, I would have stayed in my mom's house, you know? I don't, and I'm not saying be nasty and dirty. I'm just saying life, life. We've just lived it in a way of 120 people that were just a mess, that bumped in love with Jesus and got filled with the Holy Spirit and were willing to die for it. 2,000 years later, we're self-righteously perfected people trying to impress people, to bring more people back, to put more butts in the seats so we can act like we've really got our act together. And the truth is, everybody knows nobody does. It's just reality. We need the Holy Spirit. So as I was thinking about that this week, like, how do you start out with 120 people and, and it's, we're not going to blow it? Like, how can you be so confident in us? Because if I was Jesus, I would have been like, fellas, I'm going to be leaving and send you the Holy Ghost. And he shall come and be a comforter unto you. And then I would have sent the Holy Ghost. And about a week later, I would have looked over and said to Dad, I would have said, Dad, man, they're blowing it. I think I need to go back. They really need some help. But Jesus didn't come back. He felt so confident that the plan could work that he's taken 2,000 years to come back. Behold, I come quickly. That's not quickly. Behold, I come quickly is 2 o'clock. Not 2,000 years. So he must be pretty confident that the way I started it would work. And yet the devil knows the power, so the way God started it, he's twisted it, he's messed it up today, and no wonder we scratch our head. And I don't know if you've ever asked the question, I have. And even about myself, you scratch your head and go, is this all it is? I mean, isn't there more? Like, is this it? Like... Just come to church and just do it. And you just scratch your head and go, is this, is this it? I mean, we die for this? I don't think so. So, in, you know, I'm trying to work that out myself. So I'm not talking about people. It's me trying to work it out. Like, I want to do it right, God, the way you want me to do it here on this corner. And this is what I came up with. 
James chapter 3 that Justin was reading this week because we read that all week, it leapt up in my heart when I read the phrase, your tongue is a rudder like a bit put in a horse's mouth, Mark Evans' paraphrase. It can direct the whole course of your life. When I read that, your mouth directs your life. I was sitting in my office doing the little dorky videos I do, and I had a moment. They would be much more dorky if I wasn't married. She calms me down greatly. You're welcome. She says, honey, you really need to calm that down. And I do to be obedient. Otherwise, I could be a comedian. Well, you're welcome. I would have to probably repent after every video. But nevertheless, I'm sitting there. I do the video and I think, oh, I never saw that. Like the mouth directs the body. What your words speak is where your body goes. You're not subject to circumstances and politics and money and stuff and life. The Bible literally says your body follows your mouth. What your words say, your body follows. And then it was like an epiphany, not like a brilliant thing. It's just like an aha moment. Like I thought, I've never seen that either. That is amazing. Because in my brain, I went to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 says this about Jesus. It says Jesus is the head of his body. You got it? Jesus is the head over this 120 motley crew of people. Why isn't he worried about the 120 people? They're going to blow it maybe. They're going to mess it up. How can you put all these messed up people in a room? And he says, well, because I'm the head. They're just a body and I'm the head. And whatever the mouth speaks, the entire body does it. And then it dawned on me. If that's true for me and you, my mouth directs the course of my life. James chapter 3 Could it be that Jesus' mouth could direct the course of these 120 people so that 2,000 years later, we could still be doing community? We could still be doing community together. You would think if it's fake, we would have quit by now. And so then I, I thought, well, this is interesting. If Jesus is the head... And you say whatever the mouth speaks, the body follows. And this 120 people are your body. Then I want to know what the mouth said about the body. So that's kind of what took me about Thursday to get. That's how slow I am. I'm like, okay, it's Thursday. Here's what I've landed on. 120 messed up people in a room that can really blow it. Mad at each other. Emotional wrecks. And you picked them and chose them. But you're the head. And the head has a mouth. And whatever the mouth says, the body therefore follows. So that was Thursday. So then I just had one more question to ask. Then what would the mouth say about this body that would make sure it did what it needed to do? And then just out of my heart, I just saw Jesus hanging on a cross talking. And I thought, that's it. The seven things that Jesus said on the cross were the roadmap for community. You get that? The seven phrases that Jesus spoke... Because he's the head. There is no body yet. They've all tucked tail and ran. It's just the head hanging on a cross. He speaks seven things. And those seven things that he speaks out become the roadmap for this thing called community. And when they're done, as they were spoken, 
you suddenly go, man, it is true. There's power in community. So I want to look at all seven of them. Is that okay? We'll do it pretty quickly. I want to run through the seven things that Jesus said on the cross. This is the head with the mouth that when he spoke will now direct us of what it means to be in community. Number one, here it comes. It's about forgiveness. Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. If you're ever going to make it in community with people, you have to forgive to the end. People will hurt you, disappoint you, lie about you. There will be people that come in the door that don't live it, don't act it, don't want to act it. Get over it. Forgive them anyway. You have to forgive. How long? All the way to the end. He's sitting there hanging on a cross. People are mocking him and he just says, Father, forgive them. For community to work, forgiveness has to be the first priority that ever sets in your soul. And what it tells me is the very first words Jesus spoke on the cross to forgive enlightens me that the body down here must need to practice this. Because I have seen so many casualties come because they got hurt and could not find forgiveness. Or they themselves had such a shameful past, they couldn't even forgive themselves. They couldn't even believe that God could dare forgive them. You don't even know my story. You don't know what I've done. This word forgiveness becomes critical for us to move forward together. Because what it tells me is, you will get your feelings hurt in community. You will have somebody probably gossip about you. You will have somebody that won't meet your expectations. You will have somebody that will disappoint you. You will have somebody that may be a turncoat. You will have somebody that may not act godly at all. You will have somebody to come in that may have a shady past. But we all have to at least say, if it's going to work, I have to forgive. And man, that's tough. 1989, a drunk driver ran my wife over. It was not a fun day. We were going to go to federal court. We had a big lawsuit ensuing. And I felt like the Lord at a red light in Statesboro, Georgia said, Mark, let him go and forgive him. You will not sue him. And I was like, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> do you know what I could do with $4.5 million lawsuit? And at that red light, I heard the Lord. It still touches me today. Mark, I want you to forgive him and not sue him. Let him go. And so at that red light, I said, okay, I forgive him. I called my lawyer. I said, I don't want to sue. They were really ticked. They were ready to go to court. I said, I just want to let him go. He doesn't owe me anything. I felt in the moment I was being obedient, but I didn't like being obedient. I really would rather have had the money. I wanted the guy to suffer. I wanted him to go to jail. I wanted him to pay a high price, but I decided to forgive about three months later, on the Georgia Southern campus, I'm going to a football game, and I'm getting ready to go into the door, uh, into the stadium, uh, you know, the entrance to the gate. I'm going in the stadium with my ticket, and there he stands right beside the gate with a 24-pack of beer in his hand. And everything in me did not feel godly. Everything in me wanted to kick him in the crotch, bum rush him, body slam him, rear naked choke him out, break an elbow, and forgive him in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Everything in me. I mean, I saw him sitting there, standing by the gate with his 24-pack of Bud Light in his hand, 
It was a college game day. I guess he was planning on getting ripped again. And I just had to really have a a real come to Jesus moment. Have I really forgiven him? Or did I only do it just one time? Or am I willing to forgive him to the end? Oh, it's easy to forgive one time and hope you never see them again. Forgive them one time and defriend them on Facebook. Block them so you don't have to deal with them. But forgive all the way to the end? Meaning they may hurt you four or five, six times. How many times, Jesus, should I forgive? Seven? Nah, 490. That's every two minutes. Oh, yeah, good. What? It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to do it, but at least he laid out the principle, the only way community works, forgiveness has to be a priority. Number two, the second thing he said laying on the cross. Everybody deserves grace. And Jesus replied, Luke 23, 43, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. That sounds really romantic, doesn't it? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. But if you read Mark chapter 15, or Mark chapter 15, verse 32, it's a little different tale. Because the way we teach it is, we had two thieves on either side of Jesus. One was a rotten, sorry, no good thief, and the other was the penitent thief. The thief that said, I'm sorry, please forgive me, with the real jerk on the other side that just kept cussing and spitting. But Mark 15, verse 32, I think it is, gives us a different story. Because it says, both of the revolutionaries reviled him and mocked him. Both of the guys hanging next to Jesus are spitting their vial out on him. Both of them are mocking him. Both of them are doing their vial. Both criminal A and B, equally as well according to Matthew and Mark, are both spilling out their vitreous hate for him. Now, I don't know what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the other one guy. But somewhere hanging next to Jesus while they're both spitting their vial on him and the people down here are gambling for the clothes and the people over here are mocking him saying, save yourself if you really are God. This guy over here says, hey, we need to quit doing this. Would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? Maybe he heard Jesus say, forgive them. And maybe it was that message of forgiveness that caused him to go, oh, oh, is, if, if there's forgiveness, forgive me then. And you know what Jesus could have said? It's too late for you, you jerk. Just 30 seconds ago, you're chewing me out. Now you want to forgive me too. No. I don't mind forgiving them. You deserve it. He could have easily said, I don't trust you. He could have easily said, you're just, you're just in a heat of the moment trying to ask me to forgive you. I don't know what they felt on that day, but I know whatever it was, Jesus offered him grace. And Jesus said, fine, today you'll be with me in paradise. How wonderful the grace. Because a lot of times we church people don't want to give grace to everybody. We want to make you earn it. We want to make you grovel. We want to make you cry and whine. We want to make you suffer by God. Well, there's enough suffering in the world. The world will make you suffer. I want to get with a group of people that say, man, you fell apart. Come on in, bro. We got your back. We'll walk this hell out with you. We want to offer you grace. We want to give you an opportunity to redeem everything the devil has done. Everybody deserves grace. Come on, you should get happy with that one. All of us in the room deserve grace. 
The best with the worst, the worst with the worser. That's not even English, but it felt great. Worserer. Most worserer person. We all deserve grace. There's nobody in this room that's got your act together perfectly well. We all need it. Number three. The third thing he said on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he, he loved, he said to the, his mother, Dear woman, here's your son. And he said to the disciple, which was John, Here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. I wrote this down when I read that. Community heals disappointment. Here's a disappointed mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, watching her son literally beaten to death. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, he was beaten so bad you could not even recognize it was him. Come on, moms. Would you want to see your kid impaled on a stick, beaten so bad you can't even identify him? The only way you know it's your son is you've watched him rip his flesh off and you can tell the sound of his voice because you cannot tell by his face it's your kid. And mama's distraught and John's down there distraught because he was the disciple Jesus loved. And then Jesus says, hey woman, this is your son. Hey son, this is your mama. And they weren't each other's son and mama, but Jesus laid out something really powerful that day. He laid out that the only way to get over the hurt you're seeing, Mom, the only way to get over the disappointments of life, Mother, the only way you guys are ever going to get past this hurtful moment is in community together. You need each other. And so I'm convinced the devil heard that on Golgotha's hill that day. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. We will never allow community to heal disappointment. We're going to change that. Community is going to create disappointment. You're going to get in a church full of people and you're going to be disappointed. The pastor will disappoint you. The staff will disappoint you. The music will disappoint you. The leaders will disappoint you. The elders will disappoint you. The team leaders will disappoint you. Everybody will disappoint you. So therefore, go home and be your own church and watch YouTube and love on yourself. Watch your favorite television preacher. I'm not against that. I love it all. But I am telling you, it's really hard to grow in God when everybody rubbing you the wrong way has been defriended. It's really hard to grow in faith when everybody who's kind of whetting my, oh, just sharpening me the wrong way, whetting my axe. I don't want, I don't want to be made sharper. I just want them to leave me alone. I understand that. I understand some are introverts and some are extroverts, but all of us need community. All of us need each other. And the devil's destroyed that today. He's destroyed it with gossip and weirdness and craziness and just the weird things we Christians do. It's almost like rather than community being something we want, community is now a guilt trip. You better get on a team. You better get in a group. You, you know, and I'm all for those. I'm for teams and groups. And, but not to guilt trip you into it. Not to go, how many signed up for the teams? How many are in groups? How many? And the reality of it all is a lot of folks don't really believe community is a healing place. We all have been disappointed. Pastors have disappointed us. You know, I mean, but community is healing. I want to just real quick, I'm going to divert real quick. The communion we do every week. 
Three years ago, we took a big step to do communion every week. I'd been pastoring for 20 years, a couple of decades. And man, it's just stressful. Like the stress every week to have to, quote, be on your game. Every week to have to do it so perfectly that people come back. Like, like we hope you're going to come back. And, you know, we got to send texts and emails and everything's got to be perfected so that you walk out the door and go, my God, that's the greatest place in the world. We got to go back. Well, I mean, that is the goal. We sure don't want you to go out and go, man, that's the worst group of people ever. I don't want you to go out of here and sue me. You know, call 1-800-BIG-GLUE, 1-800-BIG-GLUE. What can, you know, I don't, I don't want that either. But I do, I do, you know, the pressure of it all. And so we came to the communion and I said, you know, I said, I think we need to do communion every week. And we started about three years ago. And the first day we did communion, I sobbed, literally sobbed over communion. I, I'd done it before, but we definitely didn't do it weekly. And the reason I sobbed is because for the first time in 20-something years of pastoring, I suddenly realized the pressure was not on me. Jesus has it all. I don't have to preach a great sermon. I don't have to wow the crowds. I don't, all i got to do is introduce people to Jesus and let Jesus do it. I'm telling you, I go home so happy now. I mean, I eat Mexican food. I get cheese dip too. I mean, it's just incredible. <laughs> Like I leave, crowd was low, I don't care. We took communion and celebrated Jesus. Offering was low, don't tell me that. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. But no, communion. Why? Because community heals disappointment. I can't tell you how many times I would have wanted to quit, but men and women of God held my arms up. We prayed together, we stood together because community heals disappointment. The next one is this. It starts getting a little better. I love what Jesus does. Because of Jesus, you're never abandoned. Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthini, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Do you know how many Christians today feel abandoned by God? He won't answer my prayer. Well, the preacher told me if I gave him the offering, God would give me money back. What a great deal. It's like Vegas. I gave my money. I didn't get anything back. I didn't get a dime back. Must be lying. Television preacher said if I gave him $1,000, my wife would come back to me. I gave him $1,000, they'd come and repo my car. You feel abandoned. You feel like God doesn't love you. But I do want you to know what Jesus said. You don't ever have to worry about God abandoning you because Jesus already handled that for you. Jesus said you never have to worry about God not hearing your prayer, God not being on your side. If God be for you, who can be against you? How could you say that, Jesus? What if I fail you? What if I do wrong? Don't worry about me abandoning you. Well, what if I do it over and over? Don't worry about being abandoned by me. I've already handled the abandonment issue with your father. You will never be abandoned because of me. And yet, how many people live in church today with guilt and shame of their past, their stories, the things they're afraid of, the regrets that they have, feeling like Jesus really doesn't love them? I just want you to know today, to truly be the church, we have to take our past and our failures and our mistakes and put them under the abandonment of Christ Jesus so that he accepts us for who we are. Come on, that's a wonderful thing. That was a good amen point. You're never abandoned by God. The next one. To be a motley crew of people. This one stings. I, I got to work this one out myself. Jesus knew that his mission, John 19, 28, was now finished. And to fulfill scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. 
here's the big header. Make the mission priority over your emotions. It took me a while to work this one out. Like I had to take about a day just to keep going, okay, you got to help me with this I am thirsty phrase. What in God's name does this have to do with church? I'm thirsty. You got to hook me up. And I, I, for like two days, I was like, I don't understand. How is this going to even apply? And this is what I came out with. Hanging on the cross is the righteous son of God. He had lived life perfectly and he was being crucified a criminal. And while his body is dripping its last ounce of blood, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And when I read it, it dawned on me this. You will never become so righteously holy that your emotions are not there. I have people say, well, I'm just going to go on a fast. I got to fast. Oh, man, my emotions. I'm just going to fast. Good. As soon as you get off your 21-day fast, your emotions are still going to be there. They'll be like, hey, I'm back. Been missing you for 21 days. You'll never become, this is what God gave me as I studied it out. You'll never be so self-righteous that you will no longer have emotions. Emotions are always with you. I wish they weren't. I wish I could pray them away, fast them away, quote them away, sing them away. But after I get through singing and worshiping and all of that, in some weird way, they're still there. And if you're not careful, your emotions will sidetrack you from the mission. You'll become emotional. You'll get your feelings hurt. And hey, watch, this is how fast it goes. Ready? That was the most incredible Sunday ever. Hello? What? How many people left the church? 430. Yeah, praise God. And we don't have enough money to pay bills. Okay, good. Thanks. Bye. Right? I mean, instantaneously your emotions can pop up. Instantaneously. You're just coming off a Hillsong worship conference and then you hit 285. Welcome to hell. (laughs) My God, you're throwing the middle finger up, dropping F-bombs, slamming on brakes in front of people, mad, and then you get out and you're like, whew, man, that's a rough day. Make the mission priority over emotions. It'll never work if you don't. If you think, and I think, we exist to make you happy, you're in the wrong place. That's called the club. Everybody in the club gets tipsy. But not everybody in the church gets tipsy because it's not about emotions. You backing it up in the club and baby got the back, but in here you die to yourself because it's not about emotions. It's about a mission. We didn't ask, I wonder if this set list will please everybody. I'm just assuming Michael prayed about it. And yet I think a lot of times the reason church is so hard today is emotions become our God. Emotions become our Holy Spirit. And then to be self-righteous, we just add Jesus to the emotions, which brings me to the next one. This one stings a mite. Be a finisher and not a quitter. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up the spirit, John 19, 30. There's a big difference in being finished versus quitting. I was in the fire department years ago, and we had to go through training. This doesn't look like the body of a trainer. 
I was in full gear. I don't know how much it weighed. I had all the mask on, all the stuff, all the gear. I literally looked like a pregnant tick. That's the best way I could define it. Red jacket, just... You know, and we had to work out for an hour, an hour in that, an hour of nothing but arm circles, 15 minutes of arm circles, crawling around. And I finally coming down the steps and I just land on the ground. All 200,000 pounds of me just boom on the ground. I am a full grown man. And I'm laying on the ground at the fire department training facility and I'm crying in my mask. <laughs> I mean, just sobbing. I was so sore. I wanted to quit. I'm crying. I didn't want anybody to know I'm crying. I'm laying face down, just weeping like a baby. I can't go any further. I can't go and I guess the chief's idea was, because this is what I saw happen, there was another guy crying too. And so the chief, the chief came over. He was not saved at that time. And he began to let some explicatives out. What in God's name are you laying down here, floor? You can't go any further, Chief. You can't go any further at all. I can't go any further, Chief. Then get up and get your stuff and go put it in the locker. The guy who just said, I can't go any further, hops up, takes all his gear off. And starts walking to the thing. And the chief is like, I thought you said you couldn't go any further. You told me you couldn't. And he's like, I'm laying over here going, I really can't go any further, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> right? Like I'm smart enough to know I'm not going that way. He comes back over to me. He says, Evans, what are you doing on the ground? I can't go any further. What do you mean you can't go any further? You mean to tell me if your wife and your children were in that building burning up, you would lay here crying? <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> I would have already told them they should have got out first, you know. <laughs> Literally, I'm telling you the exact truth. I don't know if he's laughing or not because I'm crying. <laughs> and he says, do you want to quit? No, I don't want to quit. Are you sure you don't want to quit? <laughs> I don't want to quit. Then this ain't your mama's sandbox. Get your <laughs> up out of here because this ain't your mama's sandbox. He called me the P word. He called me all kind of mean names. And all I had, I just got up. <laughs> and I just had this moment of, I am your father. <laughs> couldn't have saved anybody, but I wasn't going to quit. You can either finish or quit, but I tell you to be, to be a finisher, you're probably going to have to cry some. You're probably going to have to suck it up. You're probably going to have to deal with some rude people to finish because anybody can quit. Anybody can run to another church. Well, God told me to leave. Oh, no, he didn't tell you to leave if you're mad. You need to stay and work it out first because that's a finisher. I'm not saying you can't leave. We'll bless you to go like we did Dustin, but my gosh, don't quit and then quote a scripture. And don't blame your quitting on God. Well, the Lord's leading me elsewhere. Be careful. You might just be quitting. Finish. Let God work out what he needs to work out. And don't be a quitter. The last one is this. 
Oh, this is hard. Learn to trust God rather than blame people. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Luke 23, 46. How easy it would have been to hang on the cross and to blame everybody else for the pain and the problem. But in the middle of his pain, he said, Father, according to theologians, this was the last thing he ever said. Father, and this is my words, I just trust you. For this motley group of people to work, we have to start with forgiveness and we have to end with, God, I just trust you. I don't know why they hurt me. I don't know why I feel like quitting. I don't know why all these, but God, I just trust you. I don't know why, because a lot of times we want answers for everything and I wish I could give them to you. I don't know all the answers to life, but the answer I do know is sometimes When you don't know anything, you just have to trust Him. Would you bow your heads and let me bless you today? I don't know where you are in those seven things. I would imagine if you've been part of any church for any length of time, you've probably found one of them to be true. You've probably quit, felt like giving up, wondered if God abandoned you, struggled to forgive somebody. Maybe that's you. Maybe you found yourself really, really, really just struggling to trust the Lord. I've been so hurt, I don't know if I can really let go and become part of community. Pastor, I got so hurt at community. I, I got so disappointed in community. I really struggle to believe it. it can be a healing place. I understand. I'm not, I'm not angry or hurt at you. I understand every one of these seven things are real things that we have to deal with in community. Every one of them are real. I've experienced a lot of them myself. I've been hurt myself. I've hurt people on accident myself. I've felt like giving up before. I've wondered if God answered my prayers. I've felt abandoned at times. But I just stayed true. God, I trust you. So if that's you today, it's really silly to try to go forward as a church if we don't really nail these things down to being important to us, to be really important to us together. So maybe you have to start with number one, forgive somebody. Just forgive them. You may say, but they did it on purpose. Yeah, I know. Just forgive them anyway. Well, what if they do it again? Ah, they might. They probably could. They're human. Forgive them. Just keep forgiving them. I know that's hard to do. But do it anyway. It's the way community works. I'm just going to take about 30 seconds and just let it sit in your heart a minute. And you ask God which one of those seven apply to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church podcast. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there's anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week for a brand new message.